Welcome to Holyrood Ungagged, the Mr and Mrs Wallace of political podcasts. Season 6, Episode 8, I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blind Eye of Free State. And joining me this evening is Ungagged's answer to Han Solo, because they're both lovable rogues and they used to work for the hut. It's Brian Stuart Finlay. Hello, hello. And back from her six months secondment as Nicola Sturgeon's driving instructor, it's the one and only Deborah Torrance. <laughs> Welcome back. We've got the OG crew together. Yay! Back once again for the Renegade Master. Deferred Deborah. Again, <laughs> I think I think you made that joke when in the last episode as well. Oh, did we? So oh, no. I know that because I nearly done the M M&M M joke, and then I realised I think I done that last season when you you were on. So <laughs> we don't want to be repetitive. It's lovely to see your handsome faces. Well, so nice to see you too. You're so excited, Brian. I'm really, I'm really, really <laughs> excited. Like it's the first time I've spoken to Deborah properly on a face to face, well, Zoom to Zoom chat, and it's nice. It is. It's great to have you back, Deborah. How have you been? Mm-hmm. I've been very well, thank you very much. I was at the gym today, and uh, they've got this big canvas thing up, and it looks like a wedding venue, but it's actually just football pitches and a tennis court. Was disappointed. What like a marquee, marquee sort of thing? Hi, it's like, but with like a, a built structure covered in canvas. It's kind of cool. I was at a wedding last week. Was it last yeah. week? Yeah, a week on Saturday. It's very nice. We're almost late though because we're dropping the kids off at babysitters and get stuck in traffic. So luckily, my wife is driving because she has a more casual regard for safety. So, oh. you know, <laughs> flying around corners and two wheels while I was like white knuckling it the whole way but we made it there just before the bride I had visions of having to run past the bride as she was going to Nile saying sorry <laughs> <laughs> I liked your pictures you looked a very handsome couple it's all about the angles <laughs> <laughs> I think you've brought the rain though to Scotland because you were both wearing sunglasses. It was like they're tempting it. It wasn't raining that day. It was, <laughs> was it quite chilly, but it was very, very bright. So, in years to come, they'll look back at their wedding pictures and think, "God, it was a wonderful, lovely day we were married on," even though it was like <laughs> minus one or something. But <laughs> nice, bright sunshine. There's, you can't tell the the temperature from a picture. True, and it's like one of those things. I just wish it would be that kind of nice, bright, sunny, cold weather, and for like until like February, and then it just changes back. That would be lovely. Yeah. Crisp nice, leaves. Crisp. A, a nice trade off, isn't it? If you, Absolutely. If they put up with the cold, at least you know make it bright and at least give something to hang your hat on. And 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 shout out to Dundee there. So when I lived in Dundee, you get lo- loads more of that weather over the winter in Dundee. There you go. Nice and bright. Chilly. Lovely. Aber- Aberdeen too. I was in Aberdeen mm-hmm, visiting mm-hmm. my wee cousin a while ago and she says there's a lot of days like that in Aberdeen. Yeah. You were in Aberdeen, weren't you, Deborah? The yes, I, I recently visited Aberdeen. It was good. Made it into a wee long weekend situation with my partner and my dog and then sneaked the dog into conference. It was good. Nice. <laughs> I saw that. Were you on the telly as well? Yeah, I might have heard her on the telly. BBC Grassman, she's in here with a dog, she's no meant to be. <laughs> but nobody challenged me because she was sitting on my knee on my wheelchair 
So I think they felt a bit awkward about it. <laughs> right, I just say it's your emotional support dog. Well, yeah. every dog is an emotional support dog, I would oh, argue. Well, what are the rules out the window then? They'll just be dog, <laughs> dogs everywhere. Well, aye, aye, they should be part of the family, especially aye. dogs that you can fit in your pocket. More dogs, you, please. You, you ever seen the pictures from New York where they passed a law that you would only allow your dog in the subway if it was able to fit in a bag? So it's people who are like Dobermans <laughs> and Alsatians, like, and uh, what kind of, uh, what do you call it? Ikea. Ikea bags, so like the holes cutting them for the legs. <laughs> They're brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Wait to get rid of a, a rule. Exactly. Well, we're back together again. So mm-hmm. I say, let's get ungagged. First up on the agenda, the Holyrood Parliament's Managing Authority declined a request from the Scottish Conservatives to fly the Israeli flag following surprise attacks by Hamas at Israel uh, from Gaza um, a couple of weeks ago. The Israeli flag was projected onto the UK House of Commons building in London as well as in Number 10 Downing Street. The decision came as Scottish Green MSP Maggie Chapman, who is one of the five MSPs on the Scottish Parliament corporate body, uh, that made the decision came under fire over a controversial post on Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter. I'm I'm not getting on board with this X stuff about the conflict. Who would like to start us off? I'll go. Deborah. <laughs> I would like to uh, first of all, absolutely and utterly, hundred percent condemn flags of any kind. Don't shag flags. Uh, like, I don't think government buildings should be flying flags in the countries they're no like responsible for. So that's just how I feel about it. <laughs> that's as controversial as I'm gonna be. Don't I don't like flags? It's fucking stupid. It also fucks up with people who are playing real time Age of Empires. Like, messes up the whole board. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you, Deborah. You always have a unique take. Fuck the flags! Like it's it's stupid. It's tokenistic. I don't I don't see the point in it. It's controversial, and we don't fly. Like I know we've got the Ukrainian flag up just now, but I don't even like that. And I I just I, I think it's stupid. Flags are stupid, except the gay diversity flag. Get agenda. <laughs> right. Do you know what? It's funny because that was a unique take, but I've got a really similar take. <laughs> it's just really funny. You know that because... unique. Exactly. You know that unique, Deborah. Um, but no, like when it comes to flying flags of other countries, right? And when a political party puts something forward to fly a flag, regardless to if it's a nation state flag, right? So if we talk about flags that represent a nation state. Um, or, you know, even regional or whatever it might be. For me, there's always a political reason behind doing so, right? Um, But then for me, it's like, well, if we're going to select flags to fly um, at, you know, the Scottish Parliament, I find that quite exclusionary for all the other conflicts and for all the other um, issues around the world, to be honest. So it's where 
it becomes quite politically motivated and it's a way of saying right so we're going to fly this flag but we'll actually ignore you know the other conflicts that's happening around the world the other um you know uh, essentially any human rights violations that's going on around the world occupations anything like that we're, we're just completely ignoring what's going on in these perhaps lesser talked about in the mainstream media and for me Maggie Chapman um has, has taken the brunt of this um particular um you know proposal from the Scottish Conservatives to fly the Israeli flag and you know separate to to the flying of the, the Israeli flag which has been rejected um and that's what the process is there for so that has happened um, and Maggie Chapman's tweet um, you know saw a lot of criticism some of it was really quite abhorrent some of the stuff that was been posted underneath that particular thread um, and we've seen for, for a party the Scottish Conservatives who like to pride themselves on free speech particularly um, to take it as so far as to say the Scottish government should withdraw or cancel the Butte House agreement because they disagreed with one tweet that a Green MSP tweeted doesn't really sound like free speech to me. So, you know, this whole issue, you know, trying to, to step aside from the issue at hand, okay, um, but, you know, to see this in, in equal with any similar request and then for uh, MSP to then have a particular view, standpoint on the said conflict and the, the the issues that have been coming out of the Middle East, um, to then to the extent where they should withdraw from government, where Maggie Chapman isn't even in the government, she is a member of a party which is in a Butte House agreement with the, the SNP, who's the governing party. It's just the whole thing is really really quite strange, and just my solidarity out to to Maggie Chapman for the 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 constant abuse that she's been receiving. In the face of this um it's been you know there's been several stages to this where maggie chapman has had to to issue statements on social media and um, we've seen lorna slater you know being interviewed extensively on one tweet that that one of the green msps had tweeted about and perhaps the the, the media should have the same focus on other political parties when there might be one or two elected members or representatives who are saying things that people might disagree with. Okay, so I think that what I would say on the the whole media aspect of it, that it shows within the context of what's happening right now, for me, it, it's, it just doesn't show equal um, coverage of issues around the world. And that's definitely all I'll say on that. No, I mean, 100% back the decision not to fly the Israeli flag. The idea that would be flying the Israeli flag at that point when they were declaring to the world their intention to go and commit war crimes and have subsequently have committed war crimes by taking collective punishment um, in the whole population of Gaza of 2.2 million people, depriving them of um, electricity, depriving them of water, um, depriving them of medical supplies while virtually carpet bombing parts of the, the, the Gaza Strip. It's the idea that we should be cheering that on, you know, and, you know, so much respect for Maggie Chapman because so many politicians uh, just showing themselves to be total cowards. They've ran away for this issue and 
cowardice to the point where they were uh, publicly backing war crimes and sending the green light to Israel to, you know, take whatever retribution they saw fit against a a, a mostly unarmed population. Um, you know, like the, the stuff that Keir Starmer came out with, saying that Israel had the right to um, deny um, deny supplies and water to, to the Gaza Strip, and then he's backtracking when he realised how unpopular this was. I mean, shock horror, it is not popular to be cheering on war crimes uh, and the killing of innocent people. You know, I, I don't know why they needed a focus group to tell them that. But um, And now we've got Keir Starmer walking about doing interviews, telling us he didn't say what he said, like as if it was... Did he think the camera was new? Does he think we've no saw the clips? Um, it just... I just I feel as if the kind of world forgot about the Palestinians. Um, you know, it just the Palestine Israeli Palestinian conflict was always a huge issue in politics, uh, on in left politics, um, and over the last kind of I don't know fifteen years, you know, it just it kind of went away, and part partly that was because Israel had their boot in the neck of the Palestinians and. The Palestinians couldn't really fight back anymore. Um, you know, and just because we closed their eyes to their suffering, it didn't mean it went anywhere. The Palestinians have been suffering every single day, uh, going back, you know, decades. And a lot of the reporting is acting like the Hamas attacks was was like the first day of this conflict. It's not. It's just the latest in a long tra- uh, chapter of tragedy and atrocities and you know I actually feel guilty about it because you know the, the, when did we stop talking about Palestine I can't even place when it was but we haven't spoken about it for a long time and I think and a lot of that is because the Israeli government have done a really good job of reframing this issue and any kind of discussion that leaned towards Palestinians um, is seen as beyond the pale or with that debate, uh, any criticism of the Israeli state, the extreme right wing government of the Israeli state was seen as anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and it was easier just to stop talking about it, which is exactly what the Israeli government wanted. And they don't really want a resolution to this conflict, so when people talk about a two-state solution or a one-state solution, Israel doesn't want either of them. They do not want a Palestinian state in their doorstep and they certainly don't want to give 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza the right to vote in Israeli elections be creating a non-apartheid uh, multicultural state. They don't want that. What they want is two million Palestinians to just disappear one way or the other. And that is a horrific mindset um, that only leads towards genocidal thoughts and schemes. It's it's terrifying. But <laughs> And just what you were saying there—that when we do, we do, we can't remember when you know the the, the Palestine the Palestinian um, plight has been has just fallen off the 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 radar completely in, in discussions on the left and and in politics generally, and that's what I was kind of getting at before is where is the it comes down to what um, conflicts does our media select. And what is elevated to the mainstream media, and to you know, if if, if you're somebody who accesses uh, your your news through you know primetime news bulletins, for example, there there is there is selected on, on what conflicts are happening. You know, you've got the the um, 
the conflicts in, in Yemen, um, the occupation of Tibet, all these different things. And the um, and it's only ever selected when something like this brings it into sharp focus. And you're absolutely right that what in Keir Starmer, and this has just made me even more concerned about when we're going to end up with a, with a Keir Starmer-led government where everything is, I'm just going to see what happens and then I'll choose a position. But I actually think for Keir Starmer that he's, he's completely, that this is not a good thing for him at all. And now he's now starting to say, you know, that, that the international, you know, international role and, and human rights need to be at the centre of this. And when he himself was put into a position where actually he was okay in uh, the removal of, of water, power, medicine uh, to, to, to the Palestinians who, who need that. Um, and it's been withdrawn uh, from the Israeli state. But nobody's talking about how we ended up in the situation where Israel can do that. And this is the problem. It just sort of seems like you say, when this um, attack on Israelis on, on the 7th of October, that wasn't the starting point. This goes back, you know, decades and decades. Yeah. And it's almost like this whole context has been completely forgotten and it's been reframed as this is the beginning. And, you know, when we have the Labour Party, we have the Tories, we have, uh, you know, a lot of politicians in uh, right across the UK and indeed the Western world, um, you know, essentially saying, you know, that this somehow falls under the Israeli government's defence of themselves to, you know, to withdraw essentials from from a, a civilian population of 2.2 million people. It's just, we, we wouldn't, and I, I just don't see in any other conflict how that 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 framing would be accepted. I, I don't see how that would be accepted in any other conflict. And it's just really quite disgusting and insidious how we've ended up in a, a in a place where that is accepted as mainstream media narrative and mainstream politic political narrative. It's absolutely disgusting. Just uh, when you were talking about Keir Stammer there uh, and the media, uh, you seen you said I think it was you, Brian, that sent the link uh, of him going to the mosque in South Wales. What yep. a <laughs> what a cheek he has! And he said to the the poor man there. Uh, you just have to release the hostages. Like how? What? <laughs> that was out. That was pretty outrageous. the The whole situation is, and I don't want to say insane, but I, it's hard to comment as a white woman Presbyterian <laughs> Church of Scotland person the other side of the world I'd, I don't know what insight I can give that's gonna really make a difference to a, a war that seems to be going on forever it just it's horrible to think of all the innocent people that are being affected by that and that's all I keep thinking about and that's why I said the thing at the beginning about the 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 flag because every commentator on the telly the now everybody is having to condemn one side or the other before they even speak. And that's a really frustrating and horrible thing for people who are, you know, connected to the other side who then have to hear it. Like, it just, it's, it's awkward and I don't it's, really... It's, it's so one-sided, though. Like, you know, it shouldn't be difficult to say it's wrong to kill innocent people. 
and everybody's quite happy to say it's wrong that Hamas killed innocent people, and I'll say that here as well. It's absolutely wrong that Hamas killed innocent people. Why do so many people in the mainstream media and mainstream politics find it so hard to say it's wrong that the Israeli army is is, is Israeli defence forces are, are bombing and killing innocent people? That shouldn't be difficult to say. I mean, even the Archbishop of Canterbury, can you bring yourself to say that? It was sort of like, you know, very general, um, you know, it's a tragedy on both sides, and then rushed out to say, like, condemn Hamas. And they said, and is condemn the killing of since civilians with the Israeli Defence Force. And it was like, well, we can't rush to judgment on these things. And you're like, so, so somebody who's, you know, a supposed moral leader can't even say it's it's wrong that Palestinian children are being murdered. You know, it's such a warped um, perspective that has that everybody has has got on on this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and- Did they condemn the US military when they, there was collateral collateral damage in Iraq or, you know, the invasion there? Yeah, I, I mean, we, I would even draw a slight distinction there because as much as, you know, they weren't targeting the, the US military, I don't think were targeting civilians on the main. You can say that's a bit of a, not much a, um, consolation when you bomb an area, you know, there will be collateral damage, as I like to put it. Mm-hmm. Just because you don't know exactly who the collateral damage is going to be isn't much a comfort to the people that die. But I mean, the Israeli Defence Forces, like people connected to the Israeli government, are cheering on like the murder of children, or cheering on, you know, the idea of, you know, ethnic cleansing. And the the, the media in sort of Britain, America, just don't want to see that. So they're very selective in what parts of the Israeli media and society they cover. They're not showing you mobs as uh, Israeli settlers who are murdering Palestinians in the West Bank. The West Bank, which doesn't have Hamas, is not controlled by Hamas. So what's the excuse there? They're just extreme right-wing elements in Israeli government, Israeli society, or seizing on this opportunity to do what they want to do, which is get rid of every Palestinian uh, from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the important thing is to remember that this is the Israeli state, it's the Israeli government, the, the far right Israeli government that is um, yeah. carrying this out or that the IDS is carrying this out under the orders of a right a far right Israeli government. And that, that that's where we are. And as well, when we're we're seeing rolling foot, uh, you know, rolling uh, ticker tapes of, you know, we're waiting to get twenty trucks into to Gaza to give aid. That's it's, and there's hundreds and hundreds of trucks waiting to get in. Just get them in. This this shouldn't even be a debate. These people need aid. They need support. They need to flee. And you know, where you know, f- from my perspective, and, and similar to you, Deborah, I'm I'm you know I'm a humanist and and a white person who lives you know thousands of miles away there's very little insight that I can offer uh, to this conflict but what we should be doing is allowing people to flee we should be supporting these people there should be resettlement programs like we've seen being orchestrated organically and by governments for Ukraine and we should be we should certainly not be saying oh well we're going to get 20 trucks of aid in for 2.2 million people and it's it's so so frustrating and disgusting 
that we're in, we end up in this situation and it needs to be resolved. And I, I, at the moment, I, I feel quite, I just feel despair to be, yeah. to be frank about the, 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 the whole thing. And that's kind of where, where I am on the whole thing. Yeah. And don't forget those 20 trucks are a drop in the ocean when there was already such a huge humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Like the, the, the people were already in need of aid. It's just it's yeah. I, th- I think I think they said normally in a normal day they need six hundred trucks a day. So what's twenty trucks going to do? It's yeah. barely going to you know stave off anything. Um, we're not going to find a solution to this tonight. Um, we just hope that the hope that the killing stops. Moving on to our next agenda item. Labour swept to victory in two by-elections last week in both Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth. Both seats were up for grabs after the respective MPs. Both Boris Johnson loyalists resigned. Nadine Doris stepped down after she was snubbed for a peerage and Chris Pincher resigned after he lost an appeal against a proposed suspension for drunkly groping two men. In Mid-Bedfordshire, a Tory safe seat since 1931, the Labour candidate overturned a majority of 24,000. On the same night, further north in Tamworth, Labour's Sarah Edwards received 11,719 votes, while the Tory contender Andrew Cooper garnered 10,403. Brian, what does this mean? Um, What it means is that the Tories have lost two seats. Great. And what it means is we've got two Labour MPs. Okay. That's, that's really my sort of, t- you know, because this should really be a time where there's a big, massive collective gasp of relief, right? Where we're starting to see some concrete changes in our political, you know, the change in, in UK politics. But for me, it's just like, yeah, the Tories lost. And that's the end because we're, you know, I've touched on a few, we've already spoken about a few issues with with the, the, the UK Labour Party's leadership. Um... And I just sort of feel we're going to end up in a position where we've got a government that's maybe not as nasty, um, won't potentially make things, you know, a hell of a lot worse for people, but it won't change. And it just, you know, I just don't feel any real kind of hope um, for a change when a new government comes in. And this would normally be the time where you're like, yes, here we go, like, you know, the Tories are losing seats that, you know, like you say, 1931, that's that's an incredible thing to happen, right? But the change is just not going to bring about the change which we need to try and resolve any of the issues that we currently face. And, and that in itself is, is quite a sad thing that it's almost feel like we're getting that hope kind of stolen from us because of the, the leadership of the, the Labour Party. What I will say is it's um, Sarah who who won the, the by-election um, in, is that mid-Bedfordshire? Uh, Tamworth. Tamworth, sorry. Um, that she is a trade unionist, so she was involved quite heavily with the Unite the Union. So that's something quite positive there. Um, and I do think what we're now starting to see is a pattern of what is going to happen at the next general election. Mid Bedfordshire was split. Um, the Tory drop was split between Lib Dems and Labour, but Labour still managed to overtake both the Lib Dems and and the Tories to win it, and um, which is quite incredible. Um, and we can see uh, in Tamworth where there, were, there was not much of a Lib Dem presence, that everything went to Labour. 
Um, so that in itself is is quite interesting. But the Tamworth, um, I had a quick look at who was standing there. So Britain First was standing there. Um, Reform UK and UKIP all stood and they all got nearly 10% of the vote. So that's that's a concern, um, you know. But, you know, Labour have won. First past the post has done what it does. And, okay, great. Like, what next? So, you know, it's, it, we've not really seen too much, even from the, the Labour Party conference, which was massively overshadowed by by the uh, the, the kind of situation in Gaza and in Israel. But the I, I just don't really see how this is going to radically change things. They're, they're still saying that, you know, they're going to ban zero contracts. They're still going to bring in this, this, you know, these changes for working people. But, you know, it's too expensive to lift the two-child cap, which is one of the biggest things, the easiest things that they could do to, to change people's lives, particularly those who are receiving universal credit, etc. Um, so, great, the Tories lost, the end. I'm pretty much exactly the same as what Brian was saying. I also forgot that I was taking part in the podcast there and was just sitting and enjoying listening to you. You're always so knowledgeable, Brian. Um, I actually thought when I first started uh, looking at this uh, that Mid Bedfordshire and Tamworth was the name of just one seat. I was like, where, where was the other seat? <laughs> when I was doing the show notes, I kept having to remind myself to make it not sound like that when I read it. So. <laughs> I hope I managed. England have got weird place names like that, and that's someone coming from Mullingavy saying that. But um, I I was like, yeah, the Tories lost, meh, Labour won. Like, it's by-elections in it, they don't really mean anything, and the government that's sitting in power don't usually win by-elections, is that, like, am I wrong in saying that? And then they tend to swing back in the general election anyway, so... How significant is it? I mean, it is, I suppose, from all the facts you were saying since 1931, they've held that seat. So, yeah, I'm um, I've got nothing really insightful on this to say because I just find Labour so boring right now. Yeah, it's hard to get excited at the Tories and meltdown when, you know, the, the Labour government waiting is slow, unappealing and uninspiring. Um but the Tories are in complete meltdown. You know, you were right in what you were saying there, Deborah. Governments tend to lose by elections and can quite and quite often will regain the seat, but they don't really use usually lose by elections like mid Bedfordshire. You know, twenty four thousand majority is massive in any seat. Um, you struggle to find many seats with a bigger majority than that. Um, so to lose that is. You know, it really could be a catastrophic result for the Tories. Like, you know, it's not it's not going to it's too far to say it could like be the end of the Tory party as we know it. You know, I seen could be the, a forecast they could have as little as twenty seats in the next general lol. election. <laughs> I mean, that that seems hard to believe, but you know, so does a result like this, and you know, so who knows? I mean. The Tory party is built in being the party of government, the party of close to power. If it suffers that kind of crushing defeat, it stops being that. So what do they stand for and, and what's the appeal for, for, for people then? What's the appeal for, you know, the people that join the Tories because they want to be get into power, be close to power, 
people that donate to the Tories because they want to have influence over government, if they get crushed to the point where they look as if they're not going to be in government, you know, for a generation, you know, do they ever come back that way? We can hope. Um, <laughs> of course, the scary thing is, is does something worse replace them? Is one of these, you know, far right groups that Brian mentioned that uh, that run one of these by elections? Do they suddenly does one of them end up filling the vacuum? But would that think, be any worse than the current Tories? I, They've radicalised so much. It's. I think I think where the Tories are really quite manipulative and they're they're really good at latching on and having hooks with people. But whereas when you tend to have these sort of smaller, sort of really far right groups, they're never that. You know they put people off because they don't do it in that sort of polite British aspirational way that the Tories do. Um, so even, you know, if we started to see like a new party pop up that was maybe, you know, a bit more far right, that I think there's always got just kind of limited appeal, um, you would hope. Um, but the Tories, unfortunately, have, have kind of gone that direction and they tend to hide it a lot better and they tend to construct it in, you know, a sort of more palatable way than, than what some other groups might do. So actually the demise of the, the Conservative Party, if that's where we're going, I really hope so. But unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't want to get too excitable on a on a on a Tuesday night. But it's uh, I think that would be nothing but a good thing for um for the UK more broadly. Um, it's difficult to know how this plays out in Scotland because obviously, Scotland general election in Scotland is kind of like an election within an election. You know, obviously after winning Rutherland and Hamilton West. You know, the Scottish Labour are feeling very confident. I was looking at a lot of the a lot of the seats in terms of play. the Tories have got what seven seats, something like that. So if they they collapse, Labour's very distant third and sometimes fourth in a lot of these seats. So it's very likely if they collapse, the SNP will pick up these seats. So even if Labour do really well and take seats off SNP. A lot of the losses might be made up by gains against the Conservatives, so it might be a kind of strange election where there is a huge surge for Labour and it, they do take more seats, but the SNP kind of come out with roughly the same as what they've got because, you know, the losses to Labour are balanced out with the gains to the Tories. Even well, don't, don't forget the next general election is going to be a de facto... Indie ref. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... So it will be very, you know, I don't think we can go on regular polling because people vote for all different reasons. Like, uh, as you're saying, if the Tories collapse, which would be very nice, even though that forecast of 20 seats, I'm pretty sure was a projection based on one of the by-elections, if it was replicated across the country, then that that's how, like, that's unlikely, but it's also wishful thinking. I, I think people often underestimate the Greens. Like, I can't believe I'm saying this to two Greens, but <laughs> you could pick up a, a seater in Scotland, could you know, if he's ran? Westminster. I, I, I can't see that happening, but what I can start oh, come to see... On. What I can I mean, start it, to see... Hmm. I was just going to say, I mean, if if you're talking in a scenario where 
it's a de facto referendum and the SNP are standing aside in a seat for the Greens. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, people vote out of habit, so who knows if people turn up expecting to vote SNP if they're all going to automatically think, oh, well, Greens is a, the, the independence candidate I have to go for. Um, mm-hmm. Tactical voting makes it so hard to predict as well, because if you look, the, the Lib Dems have got like a handful of seats in Scotland, it's, was it four? I mean, they all have quite narrow um, majorities. I think the biggest one's only a thousand votes or something like that, or just over a thousand. You know, so on the face of it, they look very vulnerable, but at the same time, they might hold on to them just because the other unionist parties rally around for tactical voting reasons, which kind of happened the last time. It's just hard to predict, you know. It's, it's what you're saying is I I think it, polling in Scotland isn't going to show what's going to actually going to happen and the polls are quite erratic as well so like yeah. you know some of the some of the seats seem to be like Labour and SNP might have a similar amount of seats which I can see based on what you're saying so if the Tories collapse the SNP might lose I don't know maybe ten to Labour and then they pick up another you know seven or eight you know in in areas where you know, it's not the central belt, for example. So it's it's really quite, I, I don't know what, what it's going to look like uh, when we get there. I also don't know how much that de facto referendum will actually settle in with people because of how the reality of life is for a lot of people, that yeah. they'll be thinking, get the Tories out. What's the, the you know, what's my, my best route to getting the Tories out? Yeah. And what will play into that will be, you know, the, the seat specific. Um, and and the general feeling towards Labour, we could end up in a situation where it was back to where SNP were, you know, the biggest party in Holyrood and Labour was the biggest party at Westminster in Scotland. It could be a return to that kind of different voting for different elections. I don't I don't know. It's really really quite difficult to see where we're going to go. I think that if we actually had a, a decent Labour leader and something to actually vote for, then I actually think it would be a lot different. Um, yeah. I think that there would be a, a, a sort of bigger contention, contender for for these votes to be to be um, returned to Labour or be given to Labour, however you want to look at it. Um, so it'll be quite. I think Scotland itself for the next general election will be fascinating to watch. Um, and like you say, election within election. Um, but you know, I think it would be interesting to see when you're talking about the Greens. I don't. I can't see them getting a seat in Scotland to be honest. Um, but I can see them maybe getting one or two in England. And that will be quite interesting because you've got the last kind of elections, I think it's Bristol West, they're number two behind Labour. Um, And that seat's getting redone. So it's becoming a new seat in um, Bristol Central. And if you apply how the voting went in the council elections, they're there to win it, basically. Yeah. And there's another couple of seats. So Brighton, they're expecting to hold, I think, Shan, um, who was the the leader, um, is standing there as the candidate. Um, so if they hold on to that and then perhaps they gain, uh, you know, maybe another one somewhere, that Ooh. would start to be a shift um, to see, you know, a couple of Greens, you know, three maybe uh, in Westminster. And it would be good to see Carla Denyer, who's, who's the leader, one of the co-leaders of the Green Party, would get in. She would, She's the candidate for Bristol West, uh, for Bristol Central, sorry. So that will be interesting in itself. But I can't see uh, Greens in Scotland picking up a seat, unfortunately. But um, what would be quite interesting to see how things look as we progress and change. But I think the de facto referendum, I think, unfortunately, will only ring true to to some of the population. Also, a result yeah. that absolutely crushes the Tories would really change the dynamic. Like for elections going forward, you know, 
first past the post is the the problem with it is it's a two party system and it's at the very least across the UK a three party system because of the Lib Dems in the mix. If you then have the Tories being crushed, you know, it breaks up that duopoly a lot more and I, I don't think anybody really knows how that could then turn out. Um, you know, it's hard to argue that, you know, oh, you have to vote Labour or Tory, it's a wasted vote. Well, it's hard to really argue that if it becomes Labour and, you know, another. You know, suddenly voting for a Green candidate to challenge Labour doesn't seem quite as um, quite out there or quite extreme or radical or well, that's, as big that's a change. How- that's how Carolyn Lucas got in because when the the um it was the 2010 election when she was first elected she was very close at uh, the one before that which would have been 2005 and with the you know the, the 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 drop in the poll support for Labour it was actually the Greens that took it and that's what kind of swung it so it'll be interesting to see if, if some if similar situation where people are not that happy with Labour but they want to see the Tories out that actually they maybe go for the Green candidate and it's the same with Lib Dems because it's so local right so you've got northeast fife where they know that you've got you know currently the challengers is smp and lib dems there's not really much point in voting for the other two parties so it's a it really becomes hyper localized which is really really interesting and it could be the same for the greens and labor as well potentially i don't know we just have to watch this space and i think poland is, is nice to see where you know the general trends are but i think particularly for scotland even across the uk it will be interesting to watch this election and I think it will be a very interesting watch for us all because I'm sure we'll all be up all night watching it because I know as soon as the general election calls, I'll be putting in some holiday for the for the next day because I will be there and I will be with my opera glasses ready to view what is going on. Maybe we might do a live reaction to us. <laughs> all night. <laughs> and now, a word for a sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one and group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Okay, the next item in our agenda. The SNP's Lisa Cameron has announced her defection to the Conservatives. The East Kilbride Straven and Lesma Hagel MP was facing a selection contest to remain as the SNP's candidate at the next election. She said she quit because of toxic culture in the SNP's Westminster group. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross both welcomed Dr Cameron to the party, while SNP leader Humza Yusuf called on her to step down to allow a by-election. He said her defection was the least surprising news I've had as leader of the SNP and that she should now do the honourable thing. To see someone who claims to have supported Scottish independence cross the floor to the Conservative and Unionist Party betrays the fact that she was probably that she probably never believed in the cause in the first place. 
Deborah, I feel as if I should come to you as the SNP member on the panel. How could she? How could she? How could she? I just, I'm so, ah, uh, how could she? She had been an MP for what, eight years? And her inbox would have been full of a casework from constituents that were struggling with finances, with immigration, with stuff that was a direct result of the Tory party. And then she still went and crossed the floor. I just, oh, how could she? <laughs> how could she? <laughs> Is, I'm not even raging that she left SNP. It's up to her. No big loss. See you later. Bye. Um, but to go to the to go to the Tories, like the complete, in my opinion, opposite of what the voters who voted her in on an SNP ticket would have. So I, I get annoyed when people do that anyway. I got annoyed when MPs left SNP and joined Alipa. Like that was a fucking slap in the face as well. And I feel like the only reason the Tories welcomed her is because it was a political slap in the face to the SNP. I, I don't think they've taken her on for any of her hard work and dedication. I keep hearing this thing where she was a great advocate for disabled people. Was she? Was she really? I'd, I had to go and Google who she was, to be honest. Like, I'd, <laughs> See you later. Sayonara. And if he does in my pet. <laughs> right. Um, that was that was wonderful. Um, thanks for contributing there. That was amazing. Um, yeah, I wasn't really surprised either. Um, the, the signs were always there. Um, the I think the biggest one was the she actually wrote to the Prime Minister about the GRR bill and in, in support of the the blocking of it, the the, the section thirty five. So I mean that was near a bit of a alarm bell ringing um there, there was that um what do you even say on this like imagine imagine being a voter in that constituency how furious you would be imagine being a member of our staff how furious you would be uh, imagine imagine like being dr lisa cameron's friend and waking up to that news like her you... husband her husband's an snp councillor no, he, he announced he is stepping back at the moment. So from what? From being a councillor, I think he's just trying to stay out the limelight. Is, is, is that an option? I don't know. But anyway, what? Anyway, I mean, where do you even go with this? But like, I think, I mean, you know, she's given her reasons, and you know, I really hope she wasn't feeling intimidated for that. For you know, for, for the reasons about the the um. Is it Patrick Patrick O'Grady? Patrick Grady, the allegations of, of him. But at the same time, right, if you feel a certain way, you don't join the complete polar opposite party of your, you know, basically your constitutional beliefs. Is it it's it's a very, very strange outcome. Um and and it's not really a very bright one either, because if you're thinking you're feeling a bit desperate, as in I want to hold on to my seat. The Tories ain't going to win in the next election. We've just had a 15-minute conversation about, you know, how the Tories' vote is, is collapsing. So 
it's like a desperate sort of uh, I mean if you were I mean I don't know the breakdown of of that particular constituency but I'm imagining maybe Labour might have been a better chance like you think you know you could almost understand that but this one is just daft and uh, but I just I genuinely feel sorry for the constituents and and I, I do believe that when um MPs cross the floor or join a different party or whatever it is that there, there should be a by-election. I, I really, really believe that. And we can people can hark on as much as they like that somebody votes for a candidate and that. no, they don't. Let's just stop pretending that MPs and every single constituency are that great that people are like, do you know what? I was going to vote Labour, but ugh, just going to vote SNP instead because that candidate's so brilliant. It doesn't happen like that. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that vote that way, but in general, I don't think it happens. We vote generally. People vote for parties. They vote for policies, and this person is basically just—I mean, weird. But uh, you know, like, because what was happening? Remember before the the last election when all those people were joining, like, leaving the conservative conservatives, joining Lib Dems and stuff like that. It's like it's the same thing to me. It's like that's just a complete. It's a very um, selfish thing to do in my opinion, well, I don't feel content with my party. Even if you don't feel content with your party, like become an independent and say, I'm still going to uphold these values and I'm still going to vote for these policies, but I can't work with this party anymore because I felt bullied or whatever it is. Okay, that that's okay. But to go to another party and, and, and basically just take your voters for granted, I think is, yeah, and it's a similar situation with Margaret Ferry as well, to sit there and not, you know, people, there's a complete outcry about that and just to stay in that position because you think that's the right thing to do without getting, you know, a, a second opinion from, from the people you've meant to represent. It's just a selfish thing to do. And again, but not surprising. So, you know, should we go on at the next election anyway? So that'll be the end of that. So, um, sorry, Lisa. Yeah. I mean, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago that she was threat because she was threatening to resign and she wasn't reselected and she was, you know, making claims that it was damaging her mental health. I mean, what does it do to your mental health to you turn yourself into the most hated person in Scottish politics? You know, how how's that going to help your mental health? People people have literally threatened to brick her in the street. The anger is visceral. You know, like, I mean, she didn't resign because she did this because she can squeeze another year's salary out of the grift. That's what it is. I don't think she's got any principles at all. I mean, I, I read she was a trade union rep for 10 years and now she joins the Tory, Tories. I mean, she believes in absolutely nothing. You couldn't believe have any principles and sort of like square that um, that circle. You know, it's... I just think a lot of people were politicised sort of through the referendum and then some of them get elected as MPs in 2015 elected to high office, and I think a lot of them didn't even really understand their own broader politics beyond getting swept up in the the independence debate, and they liked the idea of Scottish independence and were inspired by that. But they didn't really think about the other policies, what politics were, and I think she's realised she's in a party that she fundamentally disagrees with, even if in some level who knows if she still believes in independence. It's hard to, hard to really Hard to really believe that when she's joined the Tories. I mean, East Kilbride never had a Tory MP. You need to go back to the 50s, and I think it was a Scottish Unionist party, and I think that was like several predecessor sort of seats. It wasn't the, the exact same seat. 
So overnight, suddenly find that you're to- you're a Tory MP. That wedding I was at, I mentioned it to the groom because he's free school bride. <laughs> the look in his face, like when he found out he's got a Tory MP out the blue, you know, it's. Oh, I mean, why did she not just blame Labour and the Lib Dems even? People are still a bit angry, but they wouldn't have been this angry. Just go independent. Like, oh, she doesn't believe in it anymore. She doesn't believe in it. <laughs> That's a zinger. You've got the name of the podcast. This is what we've missed, Deborah. This is what we've missed. But I don't think she intends to stand at the next election anyway. You know, I don't think she would do very well as a Tory candidate. No. Um, yeah, it's when we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago and she was threatening to resign. At that point, I don't think MD was expecting it. Suddenly here, she was becoming a Tory overnight. Um, shocking. Anybody else get anything they want to say about this? Uh, How could she? How could she? (laughs) Deborah's saying that now, but beforehand she was like, who is she? Who is she? Oh, dear. She was actually looking for staff a while ago. I remember seeing an advert. Thank God I never went for that. My God. I know. Could you imagine? Imagine, I know. Imagine working for her. You think you've joined a sort of centre-left, a staff, a centre-left sort of MP party. Suddenly we cut you working for the bad guys. I actually just wake up to see that in the newspaper and you're like, I'm going to work for a Tory today. Ah. I have a feeling like her staff probably knew mm. like how her leanings were. You know, she was quite vociferous in her views about abortion and gender recognition and all the sort of, as you said, bad guy stuff. <laughs> I, did, I did hear somebody... I, I, read a, a tweet that made me laugh and it said if you think the SNP are upset at this, think how upset Alba must be. <laughs> <laughs> Why would she not go to? I mean, there's like precedent for a couple of SNP MPs jump to Alba. Would you um, want to be in the same party as Neil Hanvey? No, but you know, if you're alright <laughs> with the company, the, to- the, the Tories, you know, like, that maybe says uh-huh. that you'd don't have the same sensibilities as me anyway, you know. Um, uh, that's a that's a good what would you rather be in the nah, Tories neither. or be in Alaba? <laughs> I would just trigger a by-election and leave. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our final topic. Council tax rates are to be frozen across Scotland. First Minister Humza Yusuf announced uh, the SNP leader made the announcement during his closing speech at the party's conference in Aberdeen. However, local authority body COSLA said the announcement had been made without agreement from councils. A spokesman said, We deplore the way the announcement was made and its substance has been shown that previous council tax freezes have been regressive, having no impact on the poorest in society and eroding the council tax base, compounding, compounding councils' ongoing underfunding. We are clear that local taxation, in particular council tax, should be left for democratically elected councils to determine. Brian. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just for listeners, Deborah started motioning, and I think she's meaning to point to Brian, but she obviously <laughs> doesn't realise the arrangement in my screen is totally different to hers. So she was pointing towards my window to nobody. So I was <laughs> rather baffled as to what she was saying. Yeah, I, I was also laughing at that because I was like, 
Yeah, Deborah, you're pointing at the wrong direction. Um, right, council tax freeze. Okay, I get it. I understand why the SNP or, or Hunter Yousaf or uh, whoever made this decision to roll this one out is and why they're doing it right because this is an easy win apparently to ease the cost of living crisis, right? But for all the reasons that you've just listed from COSLA, it, it doesn't really work. Um, they never told anybody and it just seems like a bit of a, a grasp, right? So what they could have done is announced to get rid of the council tax, but it's a bit close to home because that graphic just appears every now and again of how the SNP were meant to get rid of the council tax ages ago. But yeah, council tax is really aggressive anyway. Uh, it doesn't. It's not targeted uh, to support the people it needs to. It's not even targeted. It's, it's essentially it's like conservative, um, local taxation thing where you know somebody who lives in grade A versus the highest grade actually disproportionately don't pay. A, you know the higher grade doesn't pay a lot more than what the person in grade A does, and it's you know and it's still based on house valuations from like the early 90s so the whole thing is just a complete mess right it needs to be completely reformed and it needs to be uh, much more progressive and it, it needs complete and utter gutting um but it appears the SP are not really up for that so you know we'll, we'll just freeze the council tax but obviously what freezing council tax does is potentially starve local authorities of more money which is, everyone knows my views on budgets over the past four years, so I'm not going to bore everyone with that again. Um, but, you know, local authorities do not have enough money to do what they need to do, and this is a potential risk. And I also agree that um, local councils should decide what their council tax rates should be, but the job for national government should be to introduce something which is a lot more progressive and ensure that local authorities are funded as they should be. So... I know why they've done it, and I get it, and it is a little bit headline grabbing, but it doesn't really work, and you've just pissed loads of people off. So it's kind of backfired a wee bit, in my opinion. Deborah? Um, well, I didn't hear it properly when it was announced, and I actually thought it was getting abolished. I was like, yay, it's getting abolished. Oh, no, it's just getting froze again. Um, Good job you didn't I, end up the BBC right after I that. I know, I know, that was the before. It. They were at, it was before the leader's speech, so we're getting opinions. Um, but I, I, it came as a bit of a shock. Uh, there was other great resolutions that nobody's talking about. Vertical axis wind turbines for everybody. That is a belter. The uh, essentials guarantee. That's an amazing uh, motion, uh, emergency topical resolution. Um, I think it was brought forward by Anne McLaughlin. Uh, I agree with pretty much all you've seen. Uh, get rid of council tax, bring in something like a rootable land value. All tax is theft anyway. So, <laughs> I'd, and as it's, it's terrible, the the affordability of council tax isn't dependent on your actual income it's dependent on how big the house is that you live in how much it's worth what if you don't actually own your house anyway your private rent your council tax just keeps going up and up and up i just i don't know um i wasn't a very i, I wasn't a enthusiastic about that announcement to be honest I just thought oh that's a headache although it should be said that I think uh, the first minister confirmed that there'll be a hundred million pounds 
uh, available I too. I think he confirmed the other day that it will be fully costed. Yeah. It will be fully funded. Yeah. But I think there's I mean, still... Cosla's upset about that because not all councils were going to change their... You know, it was different rates they were proposing to increase. So I don't know how that's going to get shared out fairly. Is that right? I mean, Brian, you're... <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it is, it is right, yeah. And uh, basically what Cosler were saying is, is right, where it's actually just allowed the councils to make the decision. So what they could have done is said, okay, we're going to give councils, you know, 100 million that's going to be split this way so you can make better decisions on how to, you know, whether it means not putting up your social rents uh, for, for people who uh, rent council housing or how what you do with, with council tax. But, you know, what we're now talking about is all the little niggly bits within a crap system where it's like okay i know it's going to take a while but say right council tax is going in x amount of years and this is what we're going to do to try and make it better in the meantime freezing it just doesn't really really cut it for me to be honest yeah yeah i kind of feel as if i'm a wee bit out of step with most of the kind of left-wing commentary i've seen on it i mean yeah a council tax freeze is bad in terms of what it means for like, public services and that disproportionately hits like the poor and the working class but let's not pretend a lot of working class people would be hit hard with a big hike in council tax it's yeah. a regressive a regressive tax and people in modest incomes pay a much bigger slice of their income than rich people do yep and that's the problem with the council tax it's a really blunt instrument either you freeze it and potentially starve public services of funding or you raise it and put a really kind of burden on people in sort of you know low to middle incomes it's 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 regressive and we need a, we need to, to replace it and we've had con vague consensus across most political parties for years and years that the council tax uh, has to go and it's, I mean, why can why can we not come up with something that people can agree on to replace it? Mm -hmm. um, surely, if we're all agreed as they go, we can come to some kind of compromise about what replaces it. Um, yeah. So really, there's no good decision you can make with the council tax. You know, you either hurt one group or hurt another group, and so I disagree with like a lot of people on the left that are coming out you know, full or guns blazing against the freeze because, well, I, I find it hard to argue that we should be raising tax when it is so blanket and regressive. And, you know, I've, I've heard people say that it's it only helps rich people, but, I mean, rich people are likely to have their council tax bill go up by, like, what, 40, 50 quid a month. If you're really rich, you're not even going to notice that. Yeah. But if you're kind of like much further down the sort of income levels, you know, 30 or 40 quid a month could be the difference between paying your bills and no paying your bills. Um, Absolutely. I, I think you're right there, David, just to, to like the, the middle, no even middle income, like higher, lower income. Like I don't even know what the bracket is, but the people, as you say, that are really that 50 or 60 quid a month will really make a difference. It might mean they can buy their way in some ice cream one weekend or something like, I think it, it I, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I do, I just know that enthusiastic about it. 
Yeah, like I'm not saying that we should charge people who are on grade A more council tax. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe it's like, okay, you, you decide you're going to freeze the council tax or you're going to give X amount to council so they don't have to increase their council tax. But I think what, and it, you know, we, we should stop making decisions about council tax in the Scottish Parliament. We should give the councils the funding and the resources they need to make better decisions for that council area, right? So, you know, it kind of goes into like local authority devolution, right? But we should be making sure that the councils have the resources so they can make the right decisions and actually help vulnerable people. And the Scottish government should be getting on with replacing the crap system. You know, so it's like a transition period saying, you know, if you want it to be six years, we'll get rid of council tax. This is what we're going to do in the meantime. So we're going to give local authorities X amount of money so they don't have to put council tax up. And then it's it, the responsibility lies with the councillors to decide what happens in that particular council area. And then, you know, the Scottish government will commit to replacing it with something more progressive based on land value or wealth, on income, whatever, whatever you know, the Scottish parliament is going to choose to replace it with but we can't just be like cool council tax freeze the end and yeah i just like i can see where you're coming from like people you know on the left saying it's an absolutely horrid thing to do well actually we're in a really horrible situation and then we, we need something to radically change it rather than just being like cool that'll that'll do for the next 12 months and i think that's the kind of vibes that i've got from it yeah i mean at disney look you know, it looks awful reactive for the SNP. Like the the freeze in place for years, and we never really made any progress on a kind of new replacement for the council tax. So they kind of abandoned the freeze, and then there was a by election, and it seemed like a wee bit of panic that they're saying, "Well, tax freeze will get some good headlines." But I would have liked to seen some kind of announcement accompany it, saying, "You know what is the end game? Are we just got to freeze it again for how long?" And what do we do at the end of that when it gets to the point where the Scottish government are having to devote more of their budget to um to make up for that? So we'll get to the point then where they'll get rid of the freeze and we'll just bring it in again a few years later when there's another political um Yeah, and also they should be increasing income tax for the top top rates. That's the thing here because yeah there's a fixed budget to some extent for the, the scotch parliament but they've not whacked up the the, the highest rates now so when they kind of say oh you know fixed budget you know can't really afford to do these things and i was like well actually you can so let's just stop saying these types of things and and increase the the, the higher rates of tax so there's more income coming in i think oh. that and it's worth mentioning as well, by the way, I'm no jumping to defence the Scottish Government or SNP, but there's other things that are also going on and mitigate some levels of the worst of austerity in Scotland. So just listen to what David was saying, how he's not, you know, so totally against it. I really do appreciate that we level of trying to help everybody, if does that make sense? Like I, I think I agree with what you're you're both saying. Is what I'm saying. Sitting on the fence, being a pure lib dem. Sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> what is what system would you both prefer other than a uh, council tax? Like I, I only said land rateable value because that's really the only other one I know. Um, I know the Greens have got a land value tax. The SSP used to have a Scottish service tax. 
Um, I was, I think the Lib Dems and the SNP at one point wanted a kind of local in- income tax. One of the issues I always oh. wondered about that is does it's a that tax. Mean, well, a local, if it's based on income and the face it's more progressive, what I'd worry about is that you could end up with a lot of variation for council, council you know, when you say have Glasgow, which needs a lot of um, which needs a lot of investment, you know, because a lot of deprivation ends up with really high local in- income taxes, whereas just over the border and some of the the kind of suburbs of Glasgow that are a bit more well off, they all have much lower income taxes and that seems kind of unfair. Uh, so I worry about that, but you've got to balance that. I mean, the Scottish service tax, I think that the SSP had, that was much more centralised and distributed in terms of need and levels of deprivation. But you can argue that, that to- it totally stripped like in a local democracy because it was all getting collected into a central pot and distributed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's pros and cons in a lot of the systems, but... And this this is why there needs to be a proper debate about it, like uh, a serious debate where there is actual proposals put forward and actually this is what things would look like. And uh, I hear what you're saying about, you know, differences by council area and things like that, but see if you, you're in Spain, like there's so much devolution when it comes to local taxation in Spain that there's huge fluctuations from like one area to the next. And... You know that that's just when when you have a less centralized government system. Even though we've got devolution in the UK, it's still incredibly centralized with with a lot of things. They I think in Spain it's like business taxes and stuff are devolved as well, right down to you know almost council level. So it's like I think we're kind of viewing it through like what we see as normal, mm-hmm. and then we'll, but whereas if actually we were to have a proper informed debate in the Scottish Parliament and they were to hear all the different options that's out there, look at some comparisons from you know, around around Europe and around the world. And also we need to have a conversation about how big our councils are. They're massive. They're too yeah. big. Um so it's just about, you know, do we do we completely revisit how local government's structured and, you know, do we have a, a third tier to, to whatever, you know, where we used to have regions like Central Region and Strathclyde and stuff like that too. So, you know, it's not just about moving a couple of notches it's about having a complete rethink about how we fund local services and how we go about changing that to to make it more inclusive and more progressive right but it's and it's such a hard conversation to have because people are used to paying your council tax and and paying your income tax and and you know that's you know that that what most normal people will will come into contact with and it's also important to remember that and i know when this is true when uh, and back in 2017 in south lanarkshire that Council tax only takes up 15% of the budget for a council. So that's their income. The rest of it's from central government. That's uh-huh. huge. You know, yeah. so council tax in itself is 15%-ish of how much councils actually earn. So it's so small and they re- they're so heavily reliant on direct funding from central government. And that in itself is quite strange when you look at Europe and things like that. It's it's quite... um kind of not in line with with, a, with some countries in Europe anyway. So it's just about having a complete conversation of how local government operates and how we pay tax in, in this country. And, and you're right, because they never had that debate when the council tax came in. You know, the poll tax was in, it was massively unpopular, there was riots. <laughs> when it finally went, they just cobbled the council tax system together at short notice and threw it in place. And 
people weren't that pleased to see the back of the council tax. They never really, uh, sorry, the back of the poll tax. They never really looked at the council tax at the time and we've just been left with it for, what, 30 years now? And we need a, we need some better. I was reading, Deborah, I really, yeah, it was just, it was on the back of what Brian was saying about having a rethink of everything. And I was reading really interesting thing by a, a woman that very much respect, uh, Kate, her name is. She was saying how she thinks, like over in Canada, they don't, like councils and local municipalities, is that what they're called over there? I don't know. Uh, they don't provide like the health and social care. I know it's a bit different because they've got private health sectors, but why do councils provide that for us anyway? That's such a huge cost to them. And a lot of the time they don't have the expertise that is needed and it often gets, you know, out to a third party anyway to provide, you know, that care and other stuff. So maybe we need to rethink councils as a whole <laughs> like, and that's and that's what i'm saying like about making councils smaller and having that sort of middle you know like the regions and they could be responsible because in um, england even it's like a uh, community councils so it's like a collection of councils have an extra layer and they tend to look after i think bigger things like maybe education and, and things like that too so okay. it's just about how do we completely rethink that but my mum was a carer for Falkirk council for years right and it operated really really well and they were really well paid and they, you know, the, it wasn't arm's length companies and it was all managed really well because it was funded properly. And then, of course, when you've got a funding model that's reliant on the Scottish government, reliant on Westminster, this is part yeah. of the problem. So it's like if you actually, I mean, expertise can be brought in from anywhere. And really, that's what councillors should be. We should be electing people that have got experience in the community and, and these different services. But when they're reliant on a Westminster via Holyrood via you yeah. know wherever to get their funding and they can't you can have all the best will in the world and the best brains in the room but if you don't have the resources to deliver a great service then it's not going to be great and that's how you end up them giving them to third parties because they get money for it yeah and that's why you end up like Falkirk Council's got a hundred buildings up for sale to to make up some deficit and some of these buildings are okay some of them are just used and you know they've been empty for years and whatever but it's like this is how councils are making money now so mm -hmm. it's it's just a, if you fund the councils correctly and make sure they're 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 as efficient as they can be, then perhaps they could operate a lot better. And it's almost like looking back to the nineteen nineties, which is just anecdotal example of my own working in social care, that these can actually be done and they can work well. Everything was better than better in the nineties. And on that mm -hmm. note, I think we'll end it for tonight. Uh, you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up for our free newsletter. You can also catch the Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. And if you've got anything you'd like us to uh, talk about, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag hollywoodungagged, or send us an email at ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting hollywoodungagged in the subject line. And you can also join our signal group. We have a thriving community where you can chat to all of us and get involved with Ungagged. Uh, so just contact us on any social media uh, platform. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you use. Until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.